Now, I wonder if you, like me, like visiting um, heritage centers, uh, those places that tell you a little bit about the local area where you, you live, uh, a bit of local history. Uh, I like doing that. In fact, when we were living in West Thamesmead, uh, I used to uh, go up when I had some time to the Greenwich Heritage Center. I don't know if you've been up there. Uh, it's quite nice uh, by Royal Arsenal there, which tells you a bit of history in the area, uh, particularly uh, during the war period. Uh, what I like about heritage centers in particular is that when you go there, you know, you can watch a little nice simple video up front. Uh, the simple video really summarizes the entire area. Maybe if you watch that video, probably you don't even need to read anything about the area. But when you, when you, when you, when you watch that video, it, it gives you a good sense of how the area is and what's also inside the heritage center so that you can pick and choose which parts of the history you want to investigate more. And most museums are a bit like that. They have this overview up front uh, of a nice video. Uh, we are currently going through the book of Judges, and it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated book, but essentially it is a story of how the people of God settled in the land of Canaan after the death of Joshua. Now, over the last two sermons we've been doing through Joshua, we are uh, through Judges, rather, we have seen how God's people began to take the possession of the land. We saw that they started off very well. Uh, they approached God in chapter 1 for how they should take over the land. And God gave them directions about that. But then immediately after that, they went to their own way. They started doing their own thing. And we saw immediately Judah turning to Simeon and asking for help. The procession after that, you know, the progress of the con second wave of the conquest uh, under these tribes was very much half-hearted, full of compromise. Uh, they failed to finish the job, such that when we get to chapter 2, we saw that God had to enter the stage and address them about this breach of covenant that they had done at Bethel and other places where they had seriously compromised their relationship with God. Well, today we are resuming our journey in Judges. Now, in verse 6 of chapter 2, but not where we left off. We're starting from verse 6, yes, and we did verse 5 last time. But there is what happens from verse 6 to where Brother Michael read, which is chapter 3, verse 6 of that, is actually a beginning of a new section. If you like, the author of Judges is now taking a pause in the narrative and is giving us, you know, an heritage center type preview to the whole book so that we don't get lost in Judges, so that we can understand it. It's a difficult book. So by us really getting our heads around chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6, we really understand what's going on in Judges. It is, this section is an Heritage Center video preview to the book. And what's quite interesting, of course, is that the author of Judges now, instead of just telling us about Judges, what he does is now in verse 6 to verse 10, he gives us a flashback. Now, to the time of Joshua and giving us a summary of what's happening in Joshua. So, when you read verse 6, it starts off and says, When Joshua dismissed the people, 
immediately you think, okay, suppose Joshua now at the meeting that the Lord has just addressed at Boshim, or is this, was Joshua present when he died? Of course, Joshua has already died. So what the author is telling us is, he's giving us a flashback to the meeting, not at Boshim, but rather before that, a session in Judges when Joshua addressed the people before he died. And in these verses, really, we are looking at verse 6 to 10, what we have is a summary of how Joshua and his generation lived in contrast to the generation that will now follow him. It's very important. We can't understand what's going on in Judges until we understand where they have been unfaithful, where, where they are broken from, put it that way. Judges is a tale of two generations, the Joshua generation and the post-Joshua generation. And studying these verses will help us understand, first of all, what we can learn from the Joshua generation in terms of how they served God. What lessons do they have for us on how we serve God as the people of God living today? So that's a brief uh, intro to that. Well, there are three lessons I just want to share from these verses um, that, that these verses tell us. Uh, the first thing that uh, we learn from verse, six to, uh, from verse 6 to verse 10 is that all God's people are meant to serve God. All God's people are meant to serve God. Now, the book of Exodus tells us that the reason God brought his people out of Israel, out of Egypt rather, into Canaan was that they should serve him. Exodus 6, uh, if you have your Bibles, Exodus 6, verse 7 to 8 says this. God says, I'll take you to be my people and I'll be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians and I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So God brought them out so that they could be what? His people. And the book of Joshua tells us that the reason God appointed Joshua to lead his people is that so that they could inherit the land and serve him there faithfully. So Joshua 1 verse 6 says this, very famous verses. It says, be strong and courageous for you shall do what? Cause these people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So that's what's happened. As Exodus tells us, they are meant to come into Canaan to serve the Lord. Judges say, uh, Joshua tells us, God appointed him so that he could fulfill that task that the Lord had purposed. Now we are told in Judges now that Joshua and this generation accomplished the task that God had given him. Verse 7 says there in front of you, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. What does the author of Judges here mean by the people served the Lord? 
Well, it does, it does not mean that the people during Joshua's time and the elders did not commit any sins. No. There was wrongdoing <laughs> during the time of Joshua. We know that because the fall of Jericho involved a bit of problems afterwards, isn't it? There the sin of Achan, for example, that happened during the time of Joshua, such that God was so angry that when they attacked Ai, you know, they ran into some problems there as an act of God's judgment on them. So Joshua's period, although they served the Lord, was not perfect. The, the order of judges is not saying there was no sin during that time. We also know that the period after Joshua was not without sin either, because we've just been going through two sermons on that. We saw they were half-hearted and they were full of compromise. So to understand what that means, we have to go to Joshua himself when he gave the speech. How he understood how he served God. So let's go to Joshua 24, verse 14 to verse 18. You might have to flick a few Bible passages uh, this evening. So Joshua, as I said, it's a complicated book. So we're going to look at some of these passages. Joshua 24 verse 14 to verse 18. So what's happening here is that Joshua now is, you know, is about to go to be with the Lord. He's you know, is, 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 is delivered his work and is giving them this covenant renewal at session. And this is what he says. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and who did those great things in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. What Joshua there is saying is that serving the Lord, really for the Joshua generation, is serving God in the sense that they worship God only, only Him, and they did not turn to idols. And all the people of God living now are called to be like the Joshua generation in our faithfulness to God and God alone. We are followers of Jesus. That is not a metaphor. It means we have died to ourselves and taken on the crucified life. We have radical dependence on God like the Joshua generation had, and we serve God and God alone. As Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Sadly, for many of us, we are tempted to live a double life. We like to be, like the generation that followed Joshua will see in a minute, we like to be one foot team church and one foot, of course, in the world. The singer Michael W. Smith uh, 
shares his experience of living this kind of double life. Uh, in one of the fantastic books I've read, I read last year called I Am Second, he writes, he writes in there uh, something interesting about how he lived a double life. He says this, he started with a drink and then a few more. Then I smoked my first pot of cannabis, he says. I felt so guilty. But a month later, I am in the thick of it. I got sucked into this thing, and I didn't even realize it. I justified it, made myself believe that I was okay, but I wasn't. He says, I went from smoking weed to LSD and cocaine. It happened so fast. It's like my compass just disappeared and I entered this whole other world. And when I finally realized how lost I was, it was too late. I couldn't stop. And then he says this, but even in the middle of this, I still believed in God. It was weird. I would go to these parties totally high and ending up talking about Jesus to my friends at the party. Do you get that? He says, I knew I didn't belong there. I just couldn't get out of that mess that I was in. And you know, you can, as I said, you can read more of his fantastic testimony in that book that has a collection of stories uh, called I Am Second. Michael W. Smith was saved. And God delivered him out of that backslidden state, of course. And now he's living again for Christ and he's never looked back. And we know, of course, that even during that time he was living a double life, he was saved because even when he was at those parties, the conscience was there pressing him to turn back to Christ. And yet he had backslidden. And that experience is a reminder that all of us, we are vulnerable to living a life of hypocrisy. I think the problem is that for many of us, our faith in Christ is our culture. You see, we have become not so much active followers of Jesus, but merely existing within the ecosystem. This means that often we can still carry on in worship and mixing with other believers. Every Sunday, when the other days of the week we are insulting our wives or watching pornography, the culture is, is there and this double life can exist. That is not serving God like the Joshua generation. We cannot serve God as we saw this morning and the devil at the same time. God demands total surrender. And all God's people are called to serve him. Joshua understood that. The elders understood that, and they served God accordingly. So serving God, of course, is very challenging when you look at Joshua's faithfulness. Perhaps at some point in the future, I'm sure we'll, we'll go through Joshua. Perhaps we should have started from that. Uh, by serving God like the Joshua generation did here, to, to be so highly commended is challenging. So how do we do it? Well, through having a relationship with God. And this is our second observation. We serve God because we have life with him. Look at this. Seven there in front of you again. He says, and the people did what? Serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who had lived Joshua, who had seen all the great work 
that the Lord had done for Israel. You see, the reason that why the Joshua generation served God and the generation that followed after that generation failed is because the Joshua generation had experienced all the great work of God in their life. That's what verse 7 tells us. What does it mean that they had seen the great work of the Lord? The word seen there literally means they had learned by experience. They had an intimate relationship with God in contrast to the post-Joshua generation. Look at verse 10, or while the generation lived after Joshua. And all that generation, he says, and there arose another generation after the Joshua generation who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, we need to understand this. The Joshua, the, gener- the post-Joshua generation, the generation that followed Joshua, did not serve God because they didn't hear about him. It's not that they hadn't heard the sermons. We've already seen God himself even appeared to these guys quite often. They are these Christophanies, the appearing of the angel of the Lord. It's not that they didn't see God appearing. It's not for the lack of any, you know, supernatural experiences. No. It's not because actually they didn't have great leadership. You know, if you read some of the commentaries on this, they almost think, wow, Joshua was such a fantastic leader and he was brilliant. And the guys who followed him were completely useless. No. Some of the judges, Deborah was... You know, an amazing judge. We'll meet Othaniel, Shamga, and other judges that we'll see coming. So Gideon, I think, yes, he was flawed in some area, but he was a brilliant judge. We'll meet many men of God that God raised up. It wasn't the lack of leadership. It wasn't the lack of God at work. It's just that they did not know him. Their problem is that deep in their hearts, deep in their hearts, they didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't really trust Him. And that's quite sobering, isn't it? You can sit under so many sermons. You can sit under great preachers. You know, I'm often sent clips by people, often of great preachers preaching around. You can, the issue is not the preachers you sit under. The issue is not the lack of even a person, you know, it's not even a lack of God showing you things in his life, in your life. The key is unbelief. And this generation after Joshua, as we'll see, had unbelief. Unbelief. They just didn't believe in the Lord. You see, only those who have true trust in God have life with God. Romans 8, verse 6 to 8 tells us this, isn't it? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, the good news, of course, of Jesus is that all those who know Jesus have a deep personal relationship with God through the Spirit of God who now lives in us. Romans, Paul in Romans continues, doesn't he, in verse 9, in Romans 8, he goes on and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in the, if the Spirit of 
God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. You see, the Spirit of God has now connected those of us who have come to faith in Christ and given us life with Him. We have now been drawn into an amazing union with God Himself in a much deeper way than the Joshua generation experienced. The Holy Spirit lives in you permanently now if you've come to faith in Jesus. If you haven't come to faith, the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you, of course. And I think we need to remember this truth because, you see, we need to remember that to live for God, God must first live in us. You see, too often in our churches, we try and get people to do things that only people who are converted can do. We want people to be loving towards one another. But only people who have the Spirit of God can do that. We, we want people to evangelize Bex But only the people who have the Spirit of God can do that. We want people to love sinners and you know, walk and be hospitable in church. Only people who have the Spirit of God can do that joyfully. We need to remember that relationship is the key to service. Relationship with God, I mean, is the key to serving Him. And I, I need to remember that as I, the Lord helps me to lead the church alongside the leadership here. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain, them that build it. And sometimes in encouraging people to serve you, you can get so frustrated about it. It can be frustrating. But you have to remember that only the Spirit of God can bring about change. And if people don't have the Spirit of God, they won't change. And therefore you must do is keep pointing them to Him and asking them to be filled with the Holy Spirit in their lives by repenting genuinely. Sadly, of course, many of us who do have a relationship with God also sometimes do not serve God <laughs> because we sometimes forget that we have a personal relationship with God. So on the other hand, we've got the folk that they can't serve God because they don't have a personal relationship with God. And then on the other hand, we've got people that actually can serve God because they have a relationship with Him, but sometimes forget they have a relationship with God and therefore they are unable to serve God as they should or don't serve God as they should. You see, when pain and suffering strikes us in our lives, what happens? We start doubting God. We start saying, look, if I have a relationship with God, why is He letting me go through this illness? And when the moment we start asking questions like that, we are not serving God now. We are now in uh, court case mode, taking God to task. When we are struggling with temptation and we are prayed for rescue and we still fall, we start asking God, if God is really my friend, why is God not giving me the power to rescue me from this particular challenge I'm facing? The moment we are asking that, we are not serving God. 
We're deceiving ourselves. We think we are. We are now in courtroom mode, taking God to the task. When we meet some Christians, tell us how much God has done for them, and we, we can even become jealous. I, I mean, I've been there. You can become jealous to hear how amazing things the Lord is doing. Wow, why is the Lord doing that in your life? What about me? We ask. And what that often does, of course, is that it leaves us empty. It leaves us yearning for that miraculous experience to validate our relationship with God. And when we're doing that, we're not serving God. We're doing what? We're taking God to the task and we lose confidence in God and often become miserable. A miserable Christian is not serving God. I think it's David Murray in his book, Happy Christian, who says that very term, Miserable Christian is an oxymoron, but that's, that's another sermon. The point is that when we forget we have a relationship with God, we become like the post-Joshua generation. We forsake our devotion to God and start filling our lives with empty eyes. Friends, God wants all of us to serve him because we have life with him in Jesus. So how do we serve God practically? Well, this is our final point uh, this evening. Uh, we serve God by taking him everywhere. We serve God by taking him everywhere. You see, the Joshua generation served God by doing what? By fully immersing themselves to the task that God had called them to do. Look at verse 6. When Joshua had said she dismisses the people, the people of God, Israel, went each. Where did they go? Each to his inheritance to do what? To take possession of the land. That word, by the way, that, that verse repeats exactly what's in Joshua 24, verse 28. That's why we know it's, a, it's talking about the same event. If you read Joshua 26, verse 28, it says, So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. You see, after Joshua's peace session, the people went to begin the process of taking possession that which God had given them, that which God had allocated to them. And this process, of course, continued even after Joshua died in, in, in Judges 1, verse 1. The Joshua generation were not all spin, no substance. They were not empty talkers. They walk the talk by obeying God's command to take possession of the land. Obeying God for them, friends, we need to take this seriously. Obeying God for them meant fighting to kill the Canaanites in God's name. This was dangerous. And this would have cost many of them their lives on the battlefield. You know, sometimes when I read that, sometimes I only think that the only people who died were the Canaanites. When I read the battle of, Jer you know, battle of Ai or other battles, sometimes we can really forget that only the other side is dying. There was sacrifice of lives. Many of God's people would have died on the battlefield as they sought to take victories. Even when we look at Judges 1, the taking of Bezek, Jerusalem, Bethel, lives would have been lost in that. And yet they served God obediently. Now today, of course, God is not commanding anyone, anyone, to kill people in his name. 
Instead, God has come and died for us so that we may have life in Jesus. You see, the God of the Bible is a God who dies, not commands people to kill others. He's a God who comes and dies on the cross for us. What God is asking each of us this evening is to take the spiritual victory that is already won back to our homes, everywhere where we are. We are to proclaim this victory everywhere in Canaan as the Joshua generation did. Where is your Canaan? Where is your Canaan? Your Canaan is that place God has placed you where you regularly meet those people who don't know the God of Israel. Who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the Canaanites. Those who don't know Christ. For us, that's what it means. And we are to do what these guys did. They went back to take possession of the land. We are to go back and take Christ to them. Taking Jesus is not simply, to them, it's not simply about shouting out, you know, market square. I I like doing a bit of that, of course, at the market. Uh, But taking Jesus to to our Canaan is not really about um, shouting from the rooftop, Jesus. No. It means allowing the life of Christ to shine in and through you. In tough times as well as in easy times. To let the life of Christ take root in you. So that you can be what? Light and salt in the world. It's about living out in love, joy, peace, kindness. Where God has placed you. Mark Green in his great book. It's been a day of great books today. Uh, Mark Green in his great book. uh, Fruitfulness. On the front line. We'll go through the book, by the way, uh, later on this year. But fruitfulness on the front line. It tells the story of Louise, who worked as a PA for three years, to the most unreasonable boss in Buckinghamshire. The boss was bad-tempered and very rude to others. Uh, Every day when Louise goes to work, she prays to God for strength. She prays that the boss would change and even become a follower of Jesus. But as the days pass, the man never changes. I mean, it just gets worse. In fact, the more she prayed, the worse it got. Uh, He never repents. And Louise then, at the end of those three years, she feels like a failure. Eventually, she decides she can't take it anymore. And so what does she do? She quits. She feels like she has let God down. You see, a few weeks later, She gets a call from the woman who replaces her. The woman says to Louise, look, the man is impossible. I can't work with him. Uh, I've been here for three weeks and I feel like quitting already. Uh, But I talked to a few people in the office and they said, look, you know, that when you are here, you did a fantastic job. They said, you're always gracious. You are always upbeat. And despite the impossible way in which the boss behaved, And you always had time for him. Louise, how did you do it? So Louise, of course, is totally surprised. I mean, she quit the job. Um, How did she do it? Well, first of all, she doesn't think she did anything. She actually thought she had completely failed all those three years. But all along, she was modeling Jesus. 
She was living out her faith in the Canaan of Bapnamsha. That's how she did it. She modeled Christ. And very often, when we allow the life of Christ to just simply flow through us, God opens opportunities for us to share the good news of Jesus with people watching us. I mean, I've had stories here. I've shared stories with Mamalis before, isn't it? Something about what God has done in your life where people have seen how you have conducted yourself and have come and asked you a question. That's modeling Christ. I don't mean to elevate you here, but simply to give an example that we have our own Louise, so to speak. You see, I don't know for you, but all of us find ourselves in a canon of sorts. Where has God given you an opportunity to model Jesus to Canaanites? Maybe it's your local Sainsbury's where you show up there regularly and the staff can be a bit rude, but you are there all the time and you've got to know them. How are you modeling Jesus there? Are you just like me who once or twice I have to confess I've, got, I've become frustrated a bit. So I don't go to Morrison's anymore. But that's not Christ-like. We are to model Christ there. Maybe, you know, it's your workplace, your school, you know the stuff where you work there. And that gives you an opportunity. You don't have to tell them about Jesus as such. You need to model Christ there. And then they'll have a reason to ask you about why is it you're so kind? Why is it you're so gracious? Why is it you're so patient when everything else looks like it's breaking down? So all of us have our own Canaanites. Canaanites around us, so to speak. Well, take Jesus like the Joshua generation did by going back to take possession in that area God has blessed you. But notice here that the, the legacy of Joshua is not only that they saved God uh, back to their possession, they saved God with all feet in. Do you see, did you miss that in verse 8 to 10? It's very important to read this, particularly when you go to verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, what a wonderful title, he died at the age of 110 years. And verse 9 tells us this, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Verse 10 goes on, and all that generation also were gathered, that is, they died, they, they were gathered to their fathers. The bottom line is that the people with Joshua were buried in the land. If you like, they went, they served the Lord from the womb to the tomb, as it were. They, they served God with all their lives and they were buried in the land. Why? He's reminding us that. To show that all of their lives were dedicated to obeying God to the end degree. They brought God not only to the battlefield of Canaan, they brought God home. <laughs> they brought God to the tomb, even. I think in the same way we are to serve God in our spiritual uh, Canaan, yes, but also particularly we are to serve God in our homes. In our homes. And among believers, our fellow tribesmen, as it were, we are to serve God there to find opportunities to minister there. Some of us are called to serve fellow Christians in very difficult situations. I don't mean pastors. What I mean is, some of us are called 
To serve God, perhaps having a caring, caring for a spouse who's unwell. That's very hard. That's very difficult. Some of us have been called like to do that. And we must be faithful like Joshua in doing that. Some of us have been called to care for other parents. And we are to do that. Christians must lead the charge in caring for our older parents. It's shameful when the world does it better. Shameful. We are to emulate the Jewish generation. People are to come to us and say, well, look while they serve Christ like that. That is where God has called you to. Yes, it is hard, but that is a context for extraordinary God-glorifying service. And even if many people don't see it, the Lord does. The Lord does. But to serve him. All fitting. The lessons from the post-Joshua generation, I can go on for a long time. Uh, the lesson from that is that we must serve God because we are his people. We must serve him where God has blessed us. So we continue the journey of life as we do it in 2017, as we continue. May the Lord enable us as individuals and as a church to serve God faithfully as Joshua and the elders did. Amen. This comes